this is the Educated Guest Podcast, and I'm Justin, your host. Hey, if this is your first time joining, I just want to say thank you, first and foremost, for becoming a part of this community. And you might be asking, you might be sitting at home, sitting at work, sitting somewhere in between home and work, sitting in nowhere, no man's land, no woman's land. But you still have this feeling of frustration. You're frustrated because everything that you see on social media and maybe YouTube and maybe whatever platform you're paying attention to, or maybe your peers, you see what you want, but you don't quite understand the steps to get there. And you might be asking, you know, okay, well, what is it that I want since you know so much? Well, if you're anything like us, then what you want is an opportunity to be a multidisciplinarian to practice as both an artist and a designer and some blend between the two. Maybe you want to start your own studio. Maybe you want to get a dream job or maybe you want to level up in your career where you are right now. But you're feeling stuck. You're feeling a little bit boxed in by maybe the work that's in front of you, the briefs that you're answering, or maybe the way that you've been taught up until this point. And I'm here to tell you that things aren't so black and white. You know, things are often very gray. And in that grayness, you can choose your specialty, you can choose your opportunity, you can choose your method of education. And we're all about transformational education. We're not really about the transaction because the transaction will only get you from point A to point B, and then you'll come back and ask for more. It's a trap, it's a trick. But transformation sends you on your way in hopes that you'll never need to return. So in order to educate the future artists, we have a very specific way that we go about it. Mindset, skill set, and inspiration, those three pillars. And as we move through it, we hope that you become a deeper member of this community by subscribing to our newsletter, educated-guest.com, educated-guest.com. Join us there. And you can follow us at Instagram, on Instagram, at educated underscore underscore guests on Instagram. So that said, I want to jump into something today. The topic of today is the end of art. And for those who read a lot and study philosophy and such, you know, Hegel often talks about this in his early works and sort of his description of the zeitgeist and his description of sort of the spirit of the time, so to speak. And he talks about this movement from symbolic architecture to classical architecture and design all the way into romantic architecture and design. And the purpose of him explaining that is to give a sort of foundational understanding to others as to how the zeitgeist or the spirit of the time moves through throughout history. And it's a good primer on art history because it helps you understand the aim and the end of art. Um, the end as if like you're viewing it as a conclusion or the potential to have a conclusion or the end as in the aim. So today I want to examine both of those in a little, in a slight level of depth. And my hope is that at the end of this talk and the end of this lecture, you'll have a deeper understanding a little bit of who's, who has written about um, art history and then also maybe an approach to how you view your artistic practice and your ego in your art practice. All right, cool. So I mentioned briefly just this movement from symbolic architecture to um, classical to romantic and without getting too deep and without trying to, you know, remember verbatim and describe verbatim what Hegel actually describes. 
I'll just keep it at um, at a higher level and sort of describe it this way. So in symbolic architecture and symbolic art, Hegel's sort of argument is that, and this is for if you want to research, this is H-E-G-E-L, probably one of the forefathers or four people on um, Western philosophy in general. Um, If I'm not mistaken, sort of Kant and Marx and all of them and Jeremy Bentham and all of them come after um, Hegel. So he pretty much lays the foundation for for everyone else to sort of postulate and give their opinions as well. So symbolic architecture and art sort of comes from this idea that the zeitgeist um, is rising up from formlessness and it's seeking some form to describe the inherent emotion or inherent feeling that exists within. And he uses an example of like the pyramids of Giza and um, the Sphinx also in Egypt. And he's describing this sense of, hey, well, there's not a completeness. There's no completeness to it. It's almost an, a known imperfection, but also a, an attempt to describe the feeling within. And he uses examples of um, sort of the head of the Sphinx as opposed to the body of the Sphinx. And there's not a level of completeness and a level of understanding that could be, could accurately describe, you know, what people were feeling at the time. This is, again, paraphrase and probably an intro to the thinking and the reading that you could go in depth on. Um, and then he moves into this period of classical architecture. And just for context, historically, symbolic architecture and art is, in his view, everything that predates um, Greco-Roman art. And as as a result, classical art and architecture would be Greco-Roman art and architecture. And at this time, he's sort of viewing it as this manifestation of perfection. Um, if man or woman, if human, if um, humankind were to describe exactly what they thought, felt, and <clears throat> experienced during the time, then it would come in the form of like the Statue of David, or um, he uses the example of the Parthenon and the way that it describes um, sort of brings form and function equally together in, in hopes of honoring some godlike experience, some closeness to, um, to, the, to eternity. And that's less important. You can kind of go down that rabbit hole if you're interested. That's not what I'm here to do today. I'm just kind of giving you an overview of what I'm even com- where I'm coming from. Um, and then the third sort of epic and period of art and architecture he describes as a formal movement Um, is sort of this romantic period where, and he describes romantic architecture and art as art after the Roman empire, art in the countries of the romance languages. And typically, I guess in high school art class and stuff, they would describe this as, you know, late medieval and Renaissance architecture and art. And the main point I'm getting at, and what was interesting to me when I first learned about sort of the teachings of Hegel, as it pertains to art and art history, is that he's coming from a standpoint of art dematerializing itself, meaning the form matters less and less as you go throughout history. And as a result, the form becomes almost um, an egoic manifestation of any given time period's opinion and less about the spirit, which he views kind of ends at the end at the um, ends timeline-wise after the Romantic period. And he says that 
and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper that you could, he's a philosopher, so you could literally go endlessly into uh, his teachings. But what was super interesting to me and stood out again is this idea that their art could possibly reach a conclusion. And he views it as, as I understand, as this needlessness to express the feeling or express um, the spirit of the time in a certain form. And so much, you know, so much so that art would give way eventually to theology and philosophy. And it makes so much sense when I first learned about this, because I was like, huh, you know, everybody talks about and we all have parents and grandparents who are like, you know, what's old is new again. And that usually comes in the form of like fashion and, you know, some, some, to some degree music. But I've really felt that way for quite a while, probably since, you know, two years ago or something like that, when you know, normcore started becoming popular again in the fashion sense. And a lot of, I think when people stopped wearing skinny jeans as being like the popular thing to do, instead people are going back to baggy cargoes. I'm like, wait a minute. I've seen baggy cargoes in my closet before when I was like 13, 14. This is ridiculous. What is going on? And like Dickies were becoming popular again. People wearing Air Force Ones again. You know, this is just only streetwear, though. And if you want to go a little bit more bespoke and a little bit more um, formal, the double breasted suits are coming back in. Um, thicker pinstripes, like shoulder pads and short and, and jackets for women. Like these things are well, are thought to be consistent with the times of the 70s and 80s. But if you're taking the Hegelian approach, you start to realize that these things are cyclical. And in essence, it's not about the form itself. It's about the point of what you're trying to say. And I'll never forget that there's this, you know, I don't know if it's a quote from a particular talk he did or whatever, but, you know, when asked about if he cares about fashion, Virgil was very clearly saying, hey, like, I don't really care too much about fashion. I care about having something to say. And when you put it that way, replace fashion for genre of music, replace fashion for type of furniture, replace fashion for, you know, type of canvas. It becomes less about, again, the medium and, and the form, and it becomes more about the spirit within so if we're thinking about the end of art in terms of the point of it, like the reason for being, we have to, it's worthwhile to examine whether the end of it, the point of it is to even express something in a certain form or if the end of it or the point of it is to simply be heard. To be heard is to exist and to exist is to, you know, finally come alive. So that's point number one is thinking about the end of art in terms of the point of it. And the other way of viewing that statement, the end of art is to view the conclusion of it. And one might say that art only lives as long as the artist is making the work um, or that art requires the, the viewer to actually complete the work or um Art never is complete. Like you kind of have these different spectrums of belief or different variations of belief of the timeline or the conclusion of that art actually is seeking. But 
There's an interesting quote I found recently from John Rushworth. He's Pentagram partner. Um, I don't know if he's still there, but formerly a Pentagram partner, at least. And he, he says this. He says, I don't like designers who see their work as an excuse to parade their personalities. That's not good design. Good design is about understanding the product and communicating its qualities to the world. Designers shouldn't have an ego, end quote. And the commentary on this, ironically, is from um, a philosopher, and he kind of comments and adds um, his editorial to it. And he says, this is vintage John and vintage Pentagram. Buried in this observation is a decided allegiance to the advertising rather than illustrative roots of graphic design, end quote. So, um, and that philosopher is also the author of Architecture of Happiness, which is a very important book. I think most people should read it if they're interested in art. Um, and its connection to philosophy and its connection to, you know, humanity. I think it's a good way to get started in like art history or like art interpretation. Um, Alan de Bonton is um, the author of that. So if we're going to examine this allegiance to advertising as opposed to the illustrative roots of graphic design, it begs the question of whether commerce introduces the conclusion of art. You know, can art exist? And these are unknown open questions I'm kind of just leaving you with. If commerce introduces the end of art, is question number one. And I would also argue that all subsequent, subsequent questions after that are, are, are really pointed at this idea of why should you continue to make art? Why does art need to exist? What is the point of it? What does it do for the world? What does it do for the spirit? What does it do for humanity? What does it do for a, an entire generation? And if it ever were to end or if it mean, if it needs to end, then what, 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 what should we say about it? And a lot of these questions I'm asking are more so thought experiments to understand that, you know, what you're doing in terms of your practice, in terms of the medium you're choosing to work with is less important than what you have to say, because what you have to say is really the only thing that's left. And again, what people say about you or what people say about the work is also a continuation of what you have to say. Um, so I would, I would, I think I find it really interesting if you go down that path to sort of answer those questions and that's the main reason I really wanted to just talk about the end of art again. The topic of today was the end of art. And I think it's a worthwhile experiment, thought experiment to start thinking about what role does art have in society? And it's mainly meant to introduce a level of motivation. You know, I think getting into philosophy or having an interest in philosophy often introduces a sense of you know, pessimism and a sense of um, near frustration with the work you're doing because you're trying to seek some level of deeper understanding and conclusion and finality and summary and reason for being and reason for existing in order for you to get up out of bed. You know, sometimes you need to use philosophy as you know, a discourse for motivation to understand that to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth is less important than to simply make something and bring it to life in the world and then, you know, talk about it after the fact. 
that you're interested in doing that. So that's all I have for today. Um, again, if you want to tap into this community a little bit deeper, I would highly recommend that you go to our website, educated-guest.com and also follow us at educated underscore underscore guests. And we'll talk soon. All right, cool. Peace.